And as you're turning there, uh, well, if, if you don't have your Bible or you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one near you uh, that you can grab and open up. Um, and uh, if you don't own a Bible, uh, we would like for you to, to take that Bible as yours and, and make it your own so that you have a copy of God's Word. Um, but as you're turning, or, or if you've already gotten there, uh, when you find Jude 24, go ahead and bow your heads with me because we're going to start with prayer. Father, I, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your goodness, your grace, and your mercy. God, I, I pray that as we open up your word and as we study it, that we would, um, we would see you clearly, that, that our lives would be transformed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to, to respond to this text like you desire. Let it lead us not just to head knowledge, but to a, a knowledge that warms the heart and brings us to praise and worship. Father, confront the idols that are in our hearts. Confront, um, confront the sin that we are holding to. Bring us to a place of repentance, of faith, and of joy. Father, help us to enjoy you for eternity. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. So, in July, I found this new app for my phone, and I downloaded it. It was a direction app, and the reason I got it was because you could get directions from Mr. T and Lightning McQueen, and I knew that my son, being all of four years old, would enjoy that, right? He would, he would like when Mr. T says, make a left, sucker, or, or he would like when... Lightning McQueen said, "Kachow!" after giving directions. So I downloaded this app onto my phone, and, and I was using it. And it's, it's a good app. It, it, it helps in a lot of ways. But one of the things that it does that I wasn't prepared for was it tells you, you know, you're going to have to make a left turn in a mile, and then again at half a mile, and then it tells you at 1,000 feet, right? And I, I consider myself a pretty good judge of measurement, but... I wasn't used to thinking in terms of a thousand feet in a car. So in July, when I took my mother back to the airport after she had helped me with the two littles when Megan had taken the kids to camp, um, I, I took my mom to the airport in El Paso. And as I was coming back, I was desperately low on gas. I knew I needed to get gas. And, you know, there were plenty of gas stations near the airport and I'd forgotten and so I was near downtown El Paso needing gas. So, of course, not knowing downtown El Paso very well, I asked my app to help me out to find the nearest gas station. And so Mr. T comes on and he says, make a left in 1,000 feet. And so I get into the left, lane, left turning lane way earlier than I should have, but it's a new app and I'm still getting used to it. And then I realized that I'd made a mistake. And so I was like, I don't want to turn here. I need to get back in so I can make the turn up a little bit further. So here's the mistake I made. I sped up a little bit and actually passed the person in front of me. And then all of a sudden, these red and blue lights come on and a siren comes on. I got a ticket for passing someone in a turning lane, which of course was completely fair. But I mean, I tried to put up my protest that, hey, look, I was following this app. It's new. I made a mistake. I know I made a mistake. I've got two little ones in the car. I'm not going to do something stupid. He, he still gave me the ticket. Um, but that story reminds us of, of, of really two things. One, one, we put our trust in things. I mean, you're trusting in the pew you're sitting in right now. 
if you didn't trust it, you would be standing, right? Two, we often put our trust in faulty things. And I'm not blaming the app. It was my fault. The app said turn in a thousand feet. But I wasn't used to it, and I was relying on it too much, and I made a mistake, right? And oftentimes, we put our trust in things that are not either morally neutral or even morally good. Oftentimes, we put our trust in things that pull us away from God. And so what Jude wants to call us as Christians to is a fuller trust in God. As we've, as we've looked at this letter, as we've walked through it over the last couple of months, you've seen Jude tell you to look to Jesus, to trust in the gospel, to trust in the leaders that are going to point you to Jesus And that we are to turn away from the false teachers, those who want to teach things separate from Scripture that will either make them rich or give them influence or or even darker things than that. And so Jude ends his letter with what we would call a doxology. Now, if you've grown up in the Baptist church like me, uh, the term doxology isn't thrown around very often. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a fancy word based off of, of Greek words. Um, but, but if you grew up in, in, a, in a higher church, maybe a, a Presbyterian or Methodist or even Catholic or Episcopal church, you've probably heard the term doxology. It's normally what you do at the end of a service. And so a doxology is, I mean, really, it's, it's, it's a call to action. It's a call to, to holiness. It's a call to something different. And so Jude wants to end this letter with a call to believers to live differently than the people around them. And he does this in a way that, that really, guys, points us to worship. And so I want us to to walk through these last two verses in Jude, Jude 24 and 25, and see what God, through Jude, is calling us to. So Jude says this in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And so we begin with, with that first phrase, Now to him who is able... And so we focus in on this because the first question we have to ask is, who's the him? Right? I mean, Jude has been talking about quite a few different people in his letter. And the him that Jude is talking about is God. He wants us to take our eyes from the false teachers and refocus them on the one who has called us and saved us and is helping us live a life that glorifies him. So he wants us to understand, while the false teachers want to pull us away from God, we must place our trust in the fact that God is able. Now we're going to get in a second to what he's able to do, but we must realize, and if you're taking notes, this is going to be your first note, that God is able. God is what we call, um, oh gosh, I've forgotten the word. This is embarrassing. He is all-powerful. Let's just say that, okay? God is all-powerful. There is nothing that he cannot do, okay? And of course, there's always that conundrum. This was brought up in uh, uh, my philosophy class in college. 
is God able to make a rock that even he cannot lift? All right, have, you, have you heard that question? Um, it's a silly question, and, and we, could, we could play around with it often. I mean, you could, you could ultimately... Um, the ultimate idea here is that, with that question, is if God creates something that is intended to do something, then, then that's what it will do, right? So God, if God is able to make a rock that he could not lift, but again, he's supernatural. He can work outside of the laws of nature, so then even then he could lift it. I know that's, that's super, uh, that's a lot in 30 seconds, um, but, but what we need to come to an understanding of is that God can do whatever he wants, all right? And you and I, as followers of Jesus, we have to place our faith and we have to rest in that truth. God can do whatever he wants. The psalmist tells us that God sits on his throne in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And so it's easy to believe this in the good times. It's a little bit harder when you're going through difficult moments in your life to believe that God sits on his throne and can do whatever he pleases. And to come to that realization that God is using these hard times, right? There are people going back to their homes in Houston and in Florida, and they've been completely ruined by rain and wind and trees and power lines. But we know that God uses even those things to bring about good for his people, and to draw people to himself. And so we begin understanding that God is able. We go to the next portion of verse 24. He says, to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless. And so there's two things that Jude wants us to understand God is able to do. The first one is to keep us from stumbling. Now, this is the main focus of Jude here is these false teachers that he's been talking about. And so the stumbling that he wants us to understand God keeps us from is one, buying into false teaching, but two, letting that false teaching drive us into sin. And so when it says that God is able to keep you from stumbling and do not forget that this you is not singular, he's not talking to you as an individual. This you would be better translated by someone who lives in the Southeast United States who would say y'all, right? So read this as saying to keep y'all from stumbling and to present y'all blameless, okay? Or if you're from New York, use guys, right? I mean, however you want to put it, this is a, this is a plural you, and so he's telling us that he is able to keep his church from falling into false teaching and falling into sin. Now, is he saying that you will not sin? No. Okay? You will continue to trip over yourself. What he means is this sin that will separate you from him for eternity. And we know that because of the next phrase. And to present you blameless. This is the word holy, right? This is the word that says we will stand before God without hands covered in sin. Now, friends, there's only one way this happens, and that's if you trust in Jesus. If you trust in his perfectly obedient life, if you trust in his death for your sins, and if you trust in his resurrection, that's the only way you can stand before God blameless. Friends, all of us carry with us pockets full of sin. 
And when we come before God, all we can hand him is our sin. But the good news of Jesus is that those who trust in him are not only made blameless at the moment, but they remain blameless. Not that they don't sin, because Lord knows we do. But we are washed clean by his blood. Our hands are cleansed by the righteousness of Jesus. And on top of that, we grow in holiness as we're following Jesus, as the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts, as we are fellowshipping with believers and diving into his word. We love the Lord more, we hate our sin more, so we fight it more, and we grow We grow in our maturity, we grow in our faithfulness, and we look like Jesus more each day. But this idea of presenting us blameless comes back to the good news of Jesus' death for sinners like us. So he keeps us from stumbling and he presents us blameless. Not only so so our big idea, right, is that God is able to keep his church on track. God is able to keep his church on track. He is going to protect his church from false teaching. He is going to protect his church from falling into sin that will separate them from him. And then he continues in verse 24. Jude says this, Before the presence of his glory, with great joy. Before the presence of his glory, with great joy. Friends, when we talk about God being glorious, we're talking about this being that our minds cannot comprehend and that our minds will spend an eternity trying to comprehend. And this, this being that created the universe, created you, right? And if that doesn't amaze you enough, he also created blue whales and mountains and lions, okay? This God is the one that you are going to stand before when your life ends. And so Jude wants us to prepare ourselves to stand in his presence. And friends, let's be honest, that initial meeting with him is not going to be standing in his presence, right? If you look at the Bible, anytime someone sees God or anytime someone sees an angel sent from God, what's the first thing that they do? They fall to their faces. They cover their eyes. They are concerned about their sin, and even in some places, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, they're concerned about the sins of the people around them, right? And so, this presence of glory, uh, if, if, if you go back to the Hebrew word, but also the Greek word, both of those words carry with them this idea of brightness and heaviness. And so when we say that God is glorious or that God has glory, we're saying that he is brighter and cleaner than anything we've ever seen, and he's bigger and heavier than anything we've ever seen. You cannot contain God. And you will stand before him, and you will stand before his judgment. And then Jude tells us that, we, that he's going to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. And this, this joy here, it's, it's an interesting idea because the question is, is he talking about God's joy or is he talking about our joy? And I think when you look at the structure of the sentence, we come back to God does this for his glory and he does it for our joy. 
And the question comes next, well, if God is so holy and mighty and scary, how do we find joy in this? Well, friends, it comes back to what Jude is going to tell us in verse 25, but what we hear again and again in scriptures and what we know, God created us to worship something bigger than ourselves. You were created to praise something. This is why our hearts are drawn to it. We see a sunset and we want to, to, to be filled with worship and praise. We see the beauty of our spouse and we want to, we want to praise them and, and, and enjoy them. We see the, the, the thrill of a child being born, right? And we're just overwhelmed with the emotions and, and how amazing that moment is. We see things like wonderful acting performances or, or amazing touchdown catches and our hearts just burst because we were created for worship. We were created to stand in awe of someone greater than us. And our hearts, unfortunately, are bent towards worshiping things that will not ultimately satisfy us. That's why we worship our spouses. That's why we worship sunsets. That's why we worship actors and actresses and football teams and basketball teams. Our hearts want to worship. We're just not sure where to point that worship. And so Jude tells us that when we stand in the presence of God's glory, even though we have sinned, because of Jesus's work, we will find joy. And not just joy, but great joy, exceeding joy, joy that you've never experienced. I mean, I, I bet if, if we sat down with a piece of paper and wrote down the five happiest moments in our lives, we would see how fleeting they were, right? I mean, there, there are moments where, where Megan and I will just sit back and think about how much God has blessed us and how good it is, and then there's one argument between the kids, and it's gone like that, right? I mean, you, I think y'all know what I'm talking about. Um, it's, it's taking in that, that beautiful sunset, and then at the beach, and, and then a Seagull poops on your, your beach towel, right? I mean, we, we've all experienced those, those fleeting moments of joy that are gone in just a second. And what Jude is telling us is that when we stand in the glory of God, all the joy we've ever had and all the joy we've ever longed for will be found there. And so the next part of the big idea is that God is able to keep his church on track for his glory and our joy. God is going to keep his church on track for his glory and for our joy. If you are his, if you belong to him, if you have repented of your sins and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, God will hold on to you for your joy and for his glory. So Jude takes this statement from verse 24 and turns it into praise in verse 25. He says, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. To the only God, our Savior. Friends, this reminds us that 
It's not just Jesus doing the saving by dying and come back, coming back to life. God the Father is actively involved in this. Multiple times in the scriptures, it tells us that before the foundation of the world, the lamb was slain. This was God's idea all along. When he created this world, he knew it would fall into sin. He knew that Jesus would faithfully die on the cross and come back to life. And he did it, why? For his glory and for our joy. So Jude reminds us of of who God is. God is our savior. He is the one who sent his son. He is the one who sent his Holy Spirit to confront us with our sin and to bring an understanding of the gospel. But Jude doesn't want to stop there. Right? He wants the worship to continue beyond just God the Father when he says, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So God saves us by his plan and by our faith in him, but he saves us through what Jesus did. Jesus' perfectly obedient life. Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. Jesus' hell and death defeating resurrection. And because of those things, Jesus is what? He's our Lord. He's our master. He's our boss. Sometimes we lose the sense of the power of the word Lord because we do not live in medieval England. We do not understand the world of lords and servants. But we understand the idea of a master, of someone who has absolute, complete control over who you are and what you do. We understand the word boss, right? Someone who tells you, you will show up at this time and you will do these tasks. Jesus is Lord of those who believe in him. And so our worship begins knowing that it is God who saves us and knowing that it is Jesus who, through his work, is our Lord But Jude continues, he says, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. So what we really need to do here is to group those first two words together and then the second, or the last two words. So glory and majesty, right? So so we've already talked about glory, how it's brighter than anything you've ever seen and heavier than anything you've ever felt or carried. And so we want God to, to know how glorious he is to our hearts and to our minds, but also majesty, Right, majesty has, it, it has sort of a, a royal tone to it, but also a beauty tone to it. So when you hear the word majesty, oftentimes our hearts are drawn to either something in nature, right, like the lion prowling is majestic, but also what do they call the queen in England? Her majesty, right? There's this, this royal powerful emphasis that comes with that word. And so when we look to God with our praise, we see his glory and we see his majesty. He is bigger and stronger and more beautiful than anything we can imagine or anything we have seen. But not only does God get our praise, not only does he get our our glory and our majesty, but he also has dominion and authority. Again, that word dominion carries with it um, a a kingly idea of of having control. In fact, uh, one of the universities in the the state of Virginia 
is called Old Dominion because, you know, those colonies, before they were colonies, were called dominions, right? And so th- this, this idea of dominion carries with it having absolute control of someone or something. And so when we say that God and Jesus have dominion, we're saying that they have absolute control over our lives. They can do with us whatever they want to do. And again, this you is not singular, it's y'all. So what this is saying, First Baptist Hatch, is that God has absolute control over this church. He can do with it whatever he wants to do. And you know what's amazing? Is that through the 70 plus years that this church has been here, God has blessed this church and blessed this community by his work here. Has it always been sunshine and butterflies? Of course not. But God has been faithful. And he's faithful. I mean, you know, a God that's faithful but has no control is really of no use. But a God who is faithful and has absolute control, that's a God that we can trust in. But not only does he have dominion, he also has authority. So dominion is the idea of controlling the situation. Authority is the idea of actually commanding and leading the situation. And so we respond to God and Jesus with a faith that says, this is yours, we are yours, do with us however you please. The next point in our big idea is that he deserves our praise and our lives. He deserves our praise and our lives. So Jude begins this worship with to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. So I love love the phrasing here. It's it's kind of bulky and weird going from the Greek to the English. But this idea of being before all time, what Jude is saying is that God has always had the glory, the majesty, the dominion, and the authority. Even when it was just God, made up in his, his triune nature of three distinct persons in one Godhead, when it was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and there was nothing else, he had all of the glory and all of the majesty and all of the dominion and all of the authority. And then when he spoke the universe into existence, it was his. When When all of those tragic sins in Genesis happened, it was his. When the Israelites became slaves in Egypt, the world was his. When he parted the Red Sea and set Israel free, the universe was his. As Israel divided itself into two kingdoms, it was still his. As prophets came to tell the kings of Israel and Judah, repent, go back to your first love. It was still his. When Israel fell to the Assyrians, and then when Judah fell to the Babylonians, he was still in control. When Jesus came, when Jesus died on the cross, when Jesus came back to life, these were all pronouncements of God's authority of Jesus being the king of the universe. 
And as we wait for Jesus to return, he still has all of the dominion and power and glory. It's still his. And so we look to him from all time and now, and we look forward to forever. I'm tempted to to do like squints in Sandlot and just say forever, right? For you to get that. But just, just think about this reality. God is king forever. And you being his, inherit all of the good things that he has forever. And so do not think of eternity as, I know I've used this illustration before, but I'm going to use it again because I think it's, it's perfect. Do not think of it like the Philadelphia cream cheese commercials where you are sitting on a cloud with wings spreading cream cheese on your bagel for the rest of eternity. That is not what we see in Scripture. In fact, Scripture tells us that when Jesus returns, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. So you're not going to be up in the clouds for eternity. And thank God we're not going to be eating cream cheese for eternity because I don't even like cream cheese. Okay, We are going to be on the new earth, in the new Jerusalem, with God's presence being with us forever, unbroken by sin, unbroken by death, unbroken by shame or guilt. It's all taken care of by Christ on the cross. And so we stand before God and we stand with each other, living in a world that is without sin, enjoying the fruits of a world without sin. He deserves our praise and our lives from here to eternity. From here to eternity. And Jude ends this section, this paragraph, with the word amen. If we were to translate that word into English, we don't because amen has become a part of our vernacular. But if we were to translate it, it would mean, so be it. Whenever you say amen at the end of a prayer... Whenever you say amen to a good preaching point, what you're saying is, so be it. And so Jude is calling us with this last word in his letter to be about God's glory. So friends, this is, this is the last point of the big idea, but, but let's, let's be about it. Let's be about it. So how do we apply this? I want to very quickly run through some application for us. The first one is this. We need to know that this is about God's power, Jesus' work, and the Holy Spirit's equipping. This is about God's power, Jesus' work, and the Holy Spirit's equipping. Friends, you and your existence as a believer in Jesus and the existence of this church in the Hatch Valley is to put on display God's power. For people to see that God is actively changing lives by the gospel. And you are here to display Jesus' work. That he takes wretched sinners who deserve nothing but death and hell and turns them into his sons and daughters. That God can truly take lives that are broken and bent and going astray and bring them back. Bring them back to lives that glorify him. And this is all available because of the Holy Spirit's equipping. 
Because the Holy Spirit equips the saints to do the work of the ministry of the church. God equips his people through his spirit to be faithful to him. If you're sitting here today and you're an unbeliever, or maybe you think you might be a believer, but you're sitting on the fence, I want to give you a a quick encouragement, okay? The first one, you've already heard this, you were made to worship. God created your heart and your soul to love something bigger than you. And God is calling you here to not misdirect it. Don't misdirect your worship. It's meant for him and him alone. And listen, I'm not telling you to not praise and show the worth of things in your life. Right? I would be a terrible husband if I didn't tell my wife that she was beautiful and lovely and wonderful. But as I do that, I do that with an eye on Jesus who made her and gave her to me. Right? When I eat a steak and think this is the greatest piece of meat I have ever eaten in my life, right? It should drive me to worshiping God. So don't misdirect your worship. Christian, know that the knowledge of God leads to praise, which leads to a changed life. The knowledge of God leads to praise, which leads to a changed life. Notice how Jude teaches us here. He calls us to know God more intimately, to know him more deeply. And then he calls us to praise. And if you take this knowledge and turn it into praise, that is how God's going to change your life. The more you praise and worship him, the more thankful you'll be, the more gracious you'll be, the more you will love your neighbors and love Jesus. So let your knowledge turn into praise and let that change your life. Church, together, we must grow in knowledge of God so that we will grow in our praise. Let us put God in how big and amazing he is, how beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Let's put it on display so that our hearts want to worship because of what he's done. And in the public square, friends, let us be devoted to Jesus. Let us be 100% sold out to him so that how we interact at work, how we interact at home, how we interact among friends shows where our devotion lies. First and foremost, to the Lord and Savior of our souls, Jesus Christ. We're called to have faith in Jesus. Faith above everything else that we have faith in. And you're absolutely right. Uh, You can only trust a GPS app on your phone so much. (laughs) It will get you into trouble if you put too much faith in it. Friends, the more faith you put in Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean your circumstances will get better, right? I mean, when Paul, Paul had a cushy, nice life when he was a Pharisee, when he trusted Jesus, it took him to a life of having rocks thrown at him, being shipwrecked, having people hate him, having death warrants signed for him. But he had more joy in his time with Jesus than he ever had in his cushy life with no problems. So friends, let us find our joy 
from our faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. God, I, I ask that you would, you would take this message and just put within our hearts a desire to, to worship you and, and a desire to follow you. God, let us not be people who seek head knowledge without it transforming our heart and our tongues to worship and our hands and our feet to obey. Father, help us to see Jesus as our Savior, but also as our Lord. God, give us a deep, everlasting love for you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.